Hey friends, Pastor Jack here. You know one of the things I do in my office when I have meetings is I like to serve tea. One of the reasons for that is is because it's an opportunity for me to be able to show hospitality and generosity whenever people come and sit down and have a meeting with me. So I've got all the supplies ready for that. But one of the things that I think is really important is, is that even this, for me, is actually an expression of worship. Now you remember that one of the things that we say all the time here at Trinity Church is that worship isn't just about the songs that we sing, although it certainly includes that. Worship is actually more than that. Worship is about the way that we submit and sacrifice every area of our life to the Lordship of our King. One of the things that we've been talking about a lot is the fact that that does even include our money. It includes the the resources that God has given us and the way that we have a chance to be able to give them back to Him as an expression of saying, Father, I trust you, not this paycheck. I don't trust my employer over you. I'm going to show you, watch. I'm going to give back to you a portion, a percentage, Father, of of what you've given me as a way of showing that I trust you. And so one of the things that we like to do here is is we'd like to give you an opportunity to do that. Not not because we need the money. we, we, We certainly use the money of God's people to do things like pay for our staff salaries and our lights on and the programs that we operate to care for our kids. But really the issue is, is when we talk about giving, it's because you need you to give. It's who the Spirit of God becomes in you when you have a chance to, through a disciplined, regular way, say, Father, I give you back a portion of what you have entrusted to me as an act of worship. And brothers and sisters, I would tell you that if you say, I love coming to Trinity Church for the worship, but giving is not a part of what you do, then you are falling short of experiencing all that God would have for you in the submission and sacrifice of your entire life to his lordship and his kingship. So as we transition now to an opportunity to give, I would encourage you to consider that this isn't just about funding ministries. This is about the status of your heart, the worship of your spirit, and the submission of all that you have back to rightfully where it belongs, the feet of your king. Let's worship, friends. Yeah, worship. So I'm about to enter into a form of worship for me, and that's in preaching. Another form of worship for me is in being a father. And a few months ago, I took Elisha and Adriel to a father-son retreat up in northern Michigan, And this particular camp has a dining hall and then a separate dorm room. But in the lobby of both of these different uh, spaces, there's games that you can play. And over the course of the weekend, Elisha and Adriel started playing chess on these big like carpet boards with huge pieces and stuff like that. But they were really getting into it. Elisha's grandpa has taught him chess. I'm not sure where Adriel learned it, but they had both started taking to it. And then when we got back, I noticed over the course of the next few weeks that both of them had downloaded the chess app and they were playing with each other. So I downloaded it and became friends with them. And then I've been playing chess with them, you know, off and on since then. And in chess, I've noticed that there's this interesting little dynamic and it happens to everybody, both to the boys and then also even as the adult to me, where you you make a move and then quickly you realize, 
oh, that was really bad. Oh, there goes my queen, and I have no way of recovering. There goes my rook, or I'm two moves away from checkmate. And you long for this little thing that I like to call the take back, where you take a piece and you're like, nope, that was really bad, that was really stupid. I'm gonna pull it back here, and let's just forget that that ever happened. The take back is a fantastic move in chess. You should do it sometime. <laughs> Today, we're gonna be talking about the doctrine of redemption, humanity's take back. Could we have a take back? We've been looking at the doctrines of, the bibli of biblical authority, of creation, and then of the fall in this little sub-series that we're doing out of the book of Titus called Exiles. Well, the fall that we looked at last week could easily just destroy every shred of hope that we might have. It could leave us in a state of permanent despair while our chessboard just falls apart and our lives become a mess and a disaster and we just sit there longing for a take back, that one move. Could we just get that one moment back? What is redemption? The dictionary definition is kind of bland. It says it's the action of saving or being saved from sin, error, or evil. But I don't know that it helps us all that much to sit there trying to define redemption. I'd rather spend our time trying to illustrate how it works out and how it, play, how it plays out in life. So we're gonna look at a, a, a man from the Bible, from the Old Testament, and his name is Joseph. Joseph was born into a wealthy, blended family that owned a ton of livestock. Joseph's dad was named Jacob, and Jacob had two wives, two mistresses, 12 sons, and we don't know how many daughters. Joseph was the second youngest son, and the youngest son, Benjamin, his brother, both shared a mom. Now, Joseph had two wives and two mistresses, but he only really loved one of them, but he had kids by all 12 of them, so this was a complicated family. This was a family where there were lots of opportunities for moves where a take back would be desired. As a young man, Joseph had a couple wild dreams, and these dreams were visions from God. They were actually dreams that were prophetic in nature. They were telling Joseph from God about his future, and in these dreams, he was elevated into positions of power and authority over his family, his brothers, and even his mom and his dad. Now, being a naive little kid with a little bit of arrogance and a little bit of a sense of superiority, Joseph shot his mouth off and rushed to tell his family all about these really cool dreams. When I'm reading through the Bible today, I just wanna give you a heads up. I'm actually gonna be reading out of the NLT. Normally, we, we do the ESV here in Trinity just for a little bit of continuity. I'm departing that from that today to do the NLT only because the NLT reads a little easier, a little more natural language, and I'm trying basically to tell a story. I'm, not, I'm neither endorsing NLT or ESV. Whatever translation you're reading, read it. Genesis 37, nine through 11 say this, soon Joseph had another dream, and again he told his brothers about it. Listen, I've had another dream, he said. The sun, moon, and 11 stars bowed down low before me. This time he told the dream to his father as well as to his brothers, but his father scolded him. What kind of dream is that, he asked. Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? But while his brothers were jealous of Joseph, his father wondered what the dreams meant. That doesn't take a rocket scientist or a relational therapist to realize that Joseph is digging himself a hole with his family. 
And it plays out in a terrible way. In time, Joseph's brothers are off watching the flock and they've been gone for a period of time and Jacob wants them to come home. So he sends Joseph to go get his brothers and listen to what happens. When Joseph's brothers saw him coming, they recognized him in the distance. As he approached, they made plans to kill him. Here comes the dreamer, they said. Come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns. We can tell our father a wild animal has eaten him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. Now Reuben is the oldest son. He's a little more level-headed and he says, no, 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 we can't kill her, brother. Let's just throw him into the cistern. And he's thinking to himself, I'll get him out of there later and I'll bring him back home to dad and I'll be the hero. But Reuben doesn't babysit him. He leaves and the story goes on. Then just as they were sitting down to eat, they looked up and saw a caravan of camels in the distance coming toward them. It was a group of Ishmaelite traders taking a load of gum, balm, and aromatic resin from Gilead down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain by killing our brother? We'd have to cover up the crime. Instead of hurting him, let's sell him to those Ishmaelite traders. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. And his brothers agreed. So when the Ishmaelites, who were Midianite traders, came by, Joseph, Joseph's brothers pulled him out of the cistern and sold him to them for 20 pieces of silver. And the traders took him to Egypt. Now we may have read or heard this story hundreds of times. It's a classic Sunday school type of story. It's easy to gloss over the implications of what's happening here. Let's try to insert ourselves into the story and imagine it. Imagine with me, Joseph has just been violently captured by his own brothers and thrown into a pit. But he's this cocky favorite son of a wealthy father, so he goes down kicking and screaming, you guys better get me out of here, you know what's gonna happen when I go tell dad about this. But hours go by, and his demanding tone takes on one that's more of a plea. He got a little bit hurt when they captured him, so he's crying out now, guys, I'm, I'm hungry, I'm hurting. I'm cut and I'm bruised. I really need some help. Will you guys get me out of here? The day just drones on, and the helplessness of his situation starts to sink into his one his once arrogant soul. A moment of relief comes when he sees one of the brothers step up to the edge of the pit with a rope. The brother lowers it down and Joseph thinks to himself, okay, it's over. And so he kind of becomes a little more amicable and he says, okay, I got it guys, I've been a jerk, no more. The brother pulls him up and he gets out and that momentary relief that he felt is dashed when he sees a bunch of Ishmaelites over there and they're dealing with one of his brothers. And the brother that pulled him out takes that same rope and ties his hands up. Oh no, relief is gone. And he starts to cry and beg, no guys, don't do this, don't do this. And the brother gags him while the other brother receives the equivalent of $200 and Joseph is sold. His, old fa- his own family has just sold him for a day's wages. He weeps that entire day as the Midianites travel all that day to Egypt. It might have taken a week to get there, but by the time he gets to Egypt, he's exhausted from crying. And he begins to accept the reality that he's been completely betrayed and his once good life is gone. He longs to have some moments back. He'd like a take back. He's sold into Egypt 
uh, he sold as a house servant to one of the wealthiest men in Egypt named Potiphar. Somewhere along the way, though, Joseph did some business with the Lord. Somewhere along the way, he decided he was going to try to honor God with his life, even though it was now a mess. Here's how I know. At some point, while serving this Egyptian, the Egyptian's wife made a really hard pass at him and tried to get him to do something wildly inappropriate with her. But Joseph didn't take the bait. He wasn't having any of it. It says, Joseph refused. Look, he told her, my master trusts me with everything in his entire household. No one here has more authority than I do. He has held back nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How could I do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin against God. Now think about the implications of this. At this point, Joseph is still a young man. We're not really sure how old he was, maybe late teens, early 20s. He had done so well in serving Potiphar that Potiphar had put him in charge of everything. And with all the garbage and the injustice that had happened to him from his brothers and now being a servant, he could have easily rationalized doing something inappropriate with this woman just to gratify himself for a little bit of time. But God gave him grace to resist her, to say no. Now Potiphar's wife eventually got so irritated at his rejection that she accused him of trying to rape her. And Potiphar believed her and threw him into a prison. So even though God had given Joseph the grace to do the right thing, he paid the price as if he had done the thing that he was accused of. And I imagine that this inflamed his sense of betrayal and triggered all of the same wounds from the first time that he was sold out. I imagine his conversation with God kind of like this. God, why? I don't even deserve to be in Egypt. I don't deserve to be a servant. All I ever did wrong was share the dreams that you gave me with my brothers. And since then, I've tried to honor you, I've tried to be faithful, but it wasn't good enough. I still have to pay the price. It wasn't enough that you made me a slave, now you're gonna make me a prisoner. What about my brothers? When are they gonna pay for what they've done? What about Potiphar and his wife? When are they gonna pay for what they've done? Why do I always have to be the one who suffers? Well, Joseph had one more betrayal to endure. Eventually, in prison, Joseph met two other people. These people were Pharaoh's cupbaker, cupbaker, cupbearer and baker. Sorry, that's a moment I'd like back. And <laughs> jo- Pharaoh gets irritated with them, throws them in prison. They're getting along fine, and one morning Joseph wakes up, and they're both troubled. And Joseph comes to him, and he's like, what's wrong with you guys? Well, they had had some dreams. Listen to what Joseph says. He says, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. Think about the craziness of what he just said. What was the last dream that Joseph had? The one that got him here. But he's still trusting God. The last dream that Joseph had dealt with was one about him being exalted to a position of power. But his life had gone as fast and as hard in the opposite direction as it possibly could have. And he's standing here in front of these guys who have just had some dreams talking about the power of God to interpret a dream. That's crazy. So Joseph prophesied from their dreams that eventually the cup bearer was going to be 
restored to his position serving alongside Pharaoh, and the baker was unfortunately going to be executed. And so Joseph pleads with the cupbearer. He says, hey, when you get back there to, to Pharaoh, will you tell him that there's a guy in prison that doesn't belong here? Let him know. But the cupbearer forgot about Joseph. So Joseph has been betrayed, rejected, sold, falsely accused, and now forgotten. His life is a mess. And he can trace it all back to one tiny mistake of sharing his excitement about the dreams that he had had with his family. I don't even know if you can call it a mistake. But here he sits, lonely, in prison. I think this is a familiar place for us. I think a lot of us know something about being in prison, whether it's a relational prison, a financial prison, an emotional prison, whatever else it might look like. And often we can trace the origin of our prison back to one little mistake, one little fork in the road where we accidentally took a wrong turn. Let's watch a clip about someone taking a wrong turn. mountains to be a little rockier than this. I was thinking the same thing. I'm only human, Harry. Anybody can make a mistake. Come on. Stop being a baby. So we backtracked a tad. A tad? A tad, Lloyd? You drove almost a sixth of the way across the country in the wrong direction. Now we don't have enough money to get to Aspen. We don't have enough money to get home. We don't have enough money to eat. We don't have enough money to sleep. Well, it's not going to do us any good to sit here whining about it. We're in a hole. We're just going to have to dig ourselves out. Okay, all right, you're right. You're absolutely right, Lloyd. Where are you going? Home. I'm walking home. Oh, well, pardon me, Mr. Perfect! I guess I forgot that you never ever make a mistake!
Got room for one more if you still want to go to Aspen. Where did you find that? Some kid back in town. Traded the van for it straight up. I can get 70 miles to the gallon on this hog. You know, Lloyd, just when I think you couldn't possibly be any dumber, you go and do something like this. And totally redeem yourself! <laughs> I love the preposterousness of Lloyd's redemption. Like, he's, he's clearly dumber than a box of rocks. And he took a wrong turn. And he's in a mess, but he finds a way to totally redeem himself and salvage their trip. I wonder if Joseph longed for a way to totally redeem himself. I wonder if he wished that there was a way that he could take and make this whole mess of his life and bring it together into something that made any sense at all. But that's not life. Unlike Lloyd, Joseph couldn't redeem himself. He was helpless. He was at God's mercy. But here's the thing. God was with Joseph. God was with Joseph, and in due time, God did the work only God can do. Eventually, Pharaoh himself has a troubling dream. And while he's sitting there telling his inner circle and his court about this troubling dream that he had, the cupbearer's like, oh, uh, uh, yeah, Pharaoh, I know a guy in prison that knows something about dreams. So Pharaoh summons Joseph out of prison, and here Joseph has his moment. He interprets Pharaoh's dream, and relief is finally his. He ends up marrying the daughter of an Egyptian priest, and he has a couple sons, and Pharaoh elevates him to the highest position in all of Egypt just under Pharaoh. He was lifted up out of the horrible pit that he had dug and that his brothers had thrown him into. His life was redeemed. He was no longer the slave, no longer the prisoner. Now I wonder how much he thought about his past. Did Joseph ever have a run-in with Potiphar or his wife? As the number two in all of Egypt, he could have made them pay. We don't know what happened there, but we can tell as we look at the story more that Joseph had a character of forgiving people and probably nothing ever happened. He honored God in the ways that he had positions of power. So probably nothing ever happened. What about his brothers? How much did Joseph think about his brothers? Did he long for a reconnection with them? Did he miss his father? Did he miss Benjamin? What about the brothers that betrayed him, his, the actual betraying brothers? Did he miss them? You see, though Joseph wasn't in slavery or in imprisonment anymore, there was still a huge part of his life that was a mess. There was still a big ache in his heart that longed for redemption. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the story, Joseph was put in charge of Egypt because he accurately prophesied from the interpretation of Pharaoh's dream that Egypt was going to be going through this super cool, abundant surplus time of seven years where there was just going to be plenty. And then it was going to be followed up by seven years of devastating, severe famine. And so, uh, so Pharaoh said, all right, I'm going to put you in charge. I want you to gather up all the surplus and use it to prepare us to be ready for the famine. 
And Joseph managed this duty extremely well. By the time that the famine came, he is a well-established executor of the entire nation of Egypt. People know who Joseph is. Listen to the story. Genesis 41. So with severe famine everywhere, Joseph opened up the storehouses and distributed grain to the Egyptians for the famine was severe throughout the land. And people from all around came to Egypt to buy grain from food, to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe throughout the world. When Jacob heard that grain was available in Egypt, he said to his sons, why are you standing around looking at one another? I have heard there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy enough grain to keep us alive, otherwise we'll die. Now the chapters that follow this are an amazing read. It's Genesis 42 through 45. I highly encourage you, go take some time this week, read it slowly and look at the redemption that comes out of this. Joseph's 10 brothers go to Egypt to buy food while Benjamin, the youngest brother, stays home with their father. Joseph recognizes his brothers right away but they don't recognize him. So he interrogates them a bit before selling them grain under the pretense that he's accusing them of being spies. Kind of feels like he's playing some games with them, doesn't it? In his questioning, he's grilling them and it comes out that they're actually from Canaan, they have a younger brother, and they have a father. So Joseph agrees that he's going to sell them some food, but he insists that when they come back for more, they have to bring that younger brother with them to prove their story. And he takes one of them hostage, sends the other nine on their way, but he tells his servants, hey, I want you to put their money back in their sacks with the food. Why is he setting them up like this? What is Joseph doing? If he had truly forgiven them and saw God's hand and everything, why didn't he just come out and celebrate with them right off the bat. Why didn't he send for his father, send for Benjamin, tell them all to come here and have a big glorious reunion? If he missed them, why did he delay? Well, on their journey back home, the nine brothers discover the money in their sacks and they start to panic. Oh no, this guy was grilling us about being spies and now he's gonna accuse us of being thieves too. How in the world is this money here? When they get back to their dad, They tell him all about the journey and the events, and then when their father hears that if they want more food, they have to bring Benjamin, he just loses it. No way. He's been grieving Joseph for 20 years by now. No way he's giving his other favorite son. No way he's letting him potentially suffer the same fate. He's not ready for that kind of pain, so he tells him, no, you're not taking him. But this famine is brutal, and it persists, and eventually they have no choice. Jacob tells them, hey, you guys need to go back to Egypt, and they say, no, not without Benjamin. Listen to the verses, Genesis 43. Judah said to his father, send the boy with me, and we will be on our way. Otherwise, we will all die of starvation, and not only we, but you and our little ones. I personally guarantee his safety. You may hold me responsible if I don't bring him back to you. Then let me bear the blame forever. Jacob relents and lets them take Benjamin. When they get back to Egypt, they immediately come clean about the money, and you can just kind of sense this anxiety in them over this whole situation. It's getting overwhelming. But Joseph tells them to chill out, the money's not a problem, and he invites them to dinner. They have a really cool dinner and a really nice feast, and then Joseph sends them off, but he sets a trap. 
One of Joseph's servants at Joseph's order takes his silver divining cup, the one that he would drink with and the one that he would do divination with. I'm not really sure what divination is, but this is a special cup. He sticks it in Benjamin's sack without him knowing, sends them on their way. Again, I struggled thinking about this. Like, why is Joseph setting his brothers up? It seems like he's manipulating them, or it seems like he's trying to get them to feel miserable for all the ways that they hurt him. If he had a forgiving heart, why didn't he just welcome them in? Why not just overlook the offense and take them in as brothers? I think sometimes we forget that the heroes of the Bible are humans just like us. Joseph was a man. He was dependent at every step on God's grace. I don't think Joseph hatched some scheme to hurt his brothers or to lead them onto some fantastic journey. He was probably just struggling with the whole thing, wondering how and when to let them know who he was. The last time they saw him in a distance, they recognized him. This time he recognized them. The things that they had done, the things that they had been through had clouded their vision, and they couldn't see him for who he was anymore. But he was struggling with this. The whole encounter had to be triggering for him as he wrestled with the trauma of the harm that had been done to him. Well, the brothers leave Egypt, and they begin their journey home. And Joseph calls up an armed guard, an armed contingent, and he sends them after him. They catch up, and they accuse him of stealing the divining cup. The, brother, the brothers deny that they did anything wrong. They're like, no, we don't have the cup. And in fact, if any of us has the cup, you can kill the man who took the cup. Another, man, another moment that they probably wish they had a take back. One by one, the servants search through the brothers' bags, and each one is found to be void of the stolen property. And with each void bag, the brothers kind of sigh a little bit of relief, but then they start looking at Benjamin. And the stolen property is found in Benjamin's sack. The brothers who have been tormented by this guilt for decades for selling Joseph now have to face the music that they just sold Benjamin to. So they tear their clothes and they're bawling their eyes out as they're escorted back to to this man with all the power in the world to destroy them and make them pay for what they've done. Joseph is harsh with them. He says, what is this you have done? The man who stole my cup will become my slave forever. In other words, you just sold your other younger younger brother into bondage like you did 20 years ago. You just did it again. No redemption for you. No forgiveness. You will bear the guilt of this forever. You will bear the guilt of this forever. You see, Joseph was sold, but it was his brothers who went into bondage. Joseph was sold, but his brothers had gone into bondage. You can see in their distress at losing Benjamin that the guilt had been tearing at them. They had betrayed their father. They had condemned a younger brother to a life of unjust slavery, and their foolishness with this Egyptian master had just condemned another younger brother to the same thing. They knew when they got home that the, this failure, this colossal mess that they had made was gonna kill their father. Joseph's brothers needed redemption. 
Judah steps forward. The ringleader who decades prior had stepped up and convinced the rest of the brothers to sell Joseph into slavery was now stepping up with a cry for redemption. He reminds this powerful man with all this power of what has led to this point in the exchange and he explains with intimate accuracy how much it's going to devastate his family even further to see another brother sold into slavery. Judah Judah was acutely aware of the devastation his first betrayal had caused but now listen to his softened heart. And now, my Lord, I cannot go back to my father without the boy. Our father's life is bound up in the boy's life. If he sees that the boy is not with us, our father will die. We, your servants, will indeed be responsible for sending that grieving white-haired man to his grave. My Lord, I guaranteed to my father that I would take care of the boy. I told him, if I don't bring him back to you, I will bear the blame forever. So please, my Lord, let me stay here as a slave. Let me stay here as a slave instead of the boy. And let the boy return with his brothers. For how can I return to my father if the boy is not with me? I couldn't bear to see the anguish this would cause my father. This is the cry of a man tormented by guilt. He had sold his innocent brother into a life of slavery and now he was faced with the same brutal reality all over again. And I can hear so much pain in his voice the cry of a heart desperate to be free from guilt. Judah was dying for redemption. So he's crying out to this apparent tyrant, please let me take his place. I'm begging you, take me, but let him go. A million times over, I wanna protect my brother. I'll be the one sold. Let me pay the price instead of him. Let me have my take back. I'd rather be your slave than in bondage to this guilt anymore. Take me instead. And I can see his brothers behind him all crying basically the same thing. Any one of them would have taken Benjamin's place. Yeah, Joseph was sold. But it was Judah and his brothers that went into bondage. At this moment, Joseph could see his brother's anguish and it all, come together, it all came together for him. And his prophesied position of power was not meant for him to lord over his brothers, but for him to serve them and set them free. Listen to what he says. Joseph could stand it no longer. There were many people in the room and he said to his attendants, out, all of you. So he was alone with his brothers when he told them who he was. Then he broke down and wept. He wept so loudly the Egyptians could hear him and word of it quickly carried to Pharaoh's palace. I am Joseph, he said to his brothers. Is my father still alive? But his brothers were speechless. They were stunned to realize that Joseph was standing there in front of them. Please, come closer, he said to them. So they came closer and he said again, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery in Egypt. But don't be upset. And don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. Friends, this is redemption. Redemption is the setting free a slave of sin. It's not just overlooking the sin and refraining from exacting justice on the sinner. It's setting the sinner free. 
Joseph could have overlooked his brother's fault. He could have welcomed them into his presence, but they would have been in bondage still to guilt. And with this whole scenario, God, through Joseph, had truly set them free from their sin. Not only did God set the brothers free, he set Joseph fully free. Sin does not only ensnare the sinner. It can also enslave the victim. God doesn't just offer offer this redemptive thing to the offender. He also makes it available to the offended. Redemption is the setting free a slave from sin. Now, of course, in life, the setting free doesn't happen as illustratively or as simultaneously as it happened for Joseph and his brothers, but God definitely loves and seeks to redeem both the sinner and the one against whom there's been sin. He wants to redeem them both. This is all a direct foreshadowing and a picture of the redemption that God provides for us in Jesus Christ. God does not just overlook our sin. He doesn't just welcome us into his presence as though nothing ever happened. No, he sets us free from our sin and he redeems us out of it. Not only that, he doesn't just redeem the sinner, but he also redeems the wounded and the victimized as well. Those who are truly made free, those who are truly redeemed, are not only free from the consequences of their sin, they're free from sin. Judah was not the same man who sold his brother into slavery. Redeemed Judah was a man who stepped up to the plate and volunteered to be sold himself rather than let his apparently guilty brother Benjamin go into slavery. Joseph was not the same arrogant child who rushed to proclaim his superiority. He was now patient, careful, kind, and had a servant's heart. This is the power of redemption. It's actually not that hard to see ourselves in this kind of a story, though, is it? There are some lessons that we can learn from Joseph and his brothers. The first lesson, sin always sells sinner into bondage and slavery. Sin promises many things. In the brother's case, it promised them a little bit of money. Maybe it promised them a little bit of freedom from an annoying brother. But ultimately, what they were looking for was to be free from this idea of not being preferred by their father. But sin is a liar. It promises liberty, it promises answers, but it only ever delivers bondage. We're all susceptible to these same traps, though. Virtually every sin that we find ourselves in begins with some kind of promise of something good. And we believe it's lie, but before we know it, we're in bondage to it. Secondly, unlike Lloyd, more like Joseph and his brothers, we are helpless when it comes to our redemption. This family was a disaster. Their father had played favorites. They had grieved him back beyond belief. They had sold one brother into, bra- into slavery, and now they're selling another brother into slavery. They're all in bondage of one, form of one form or another. And in that bondage, they were all helpless to change their situation. Their guilt, their slavery, was way too much to handle, and the remedy was way beyond them. They were dependent on redemption from an outside source. 
Judah and the other brothers were incapable of undoing the past. There was no take back. Likewise, we are totally dependent on Christ for our redemption. Third lesson, we have to humbly cooperate with our redemption. When the timing for redemption for Joseph's brothers came, they had to cooperate with it. Their chance for redemption didn't just show up with an announcement that this is what it was, but they still had to submit to the process. They had to own up to their their guilt. They had to acknowledge it. They had to submit themselves to consequences. Additionally, when the curtain was pulled back and, and it was all revealed that they were being offered forgiveness, they had to accept forgiveness. Joseph, when his time came, he didn't shoot his mouth off about the cupbearer forgetting about him. We don't think he went after Potiphar or his wife. He didn't send an army down to Canaan to destroy his brothers. No, he honored God. When Pharaoh asked him about his ability to interpret dreams, he said that the power to interpret belonged to God. This once spoiled, entitled boy was gone. And Joseph gave glory to God instead of seeking glory and superiority for himself. Lastly, those who are truly redeemed are empowered as agents of redemption to use whatever means they have to facilitate redemption in others. This is crucial for us to consider. Joseph had to have been tempted to just fall into an abyss of bitterness, resentment, Anger, hatred, but he didn't take it, the bait. Somewhere along the way in his journey, he had done business with the Lord and the Lord had made him free from all of that. Listen again how Joseph described his understanding of his journey when he revealed himself to his brothers. He said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery in Egypt. He did not ignore the sin, still knew what it was. It wasn't just overlooked. But don't be upset, and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here, ahead of you. Why? To preserve your lives. A sure sign of the redeemed person is that they can see God in the harm that has been done to them, often for the people who harmed them. We don't really know how Joseph got to that point. The Bible doesn't describe his internal struggle leading up to that kind of forgiveness, that kind of redemptive thought process, but we can see evidence of it in the way that he handled his brothers. In a way, this alludes to us. We don't really know how it works in our minds, but you can tell the people who are truly free and who have truly been redeemed and that they are the ones who forgive others quickly And they're the ones who constantly use whatever means, whatever advantages that they have to facilitate redemption in others. Now, I want to be careful with this idea of facilitating redemption in others because, honestly, none of us has the power to redeem. We cannot do it. We're all in the same kettle of fish. We're all helpless to redeem others. What I mean by facilitating redemption is that we point others to Jesus, who is the source of redemption, the only source of eternal redemption. Jesus is our source. He's where all of this comes from. And right now I wanna invite the prayer team members 
and the elders to come forward to pray with people after we dismiss. If you would like prayer for any reason, elders and prayer team will be here. Over the coming weeks, we're going to be pointing ourselves and others to this Jesus, this source of redemption. Next weekend is Palm Sunday, and we're going to be talking about the incarnate Messiah, where God himself stepped out of the glories of heaven into time, into a human body, became a man so that he could redeem us as men and women. And then Good Friday, we're going to be looking at this God-man on a cross, paying a dear price of being abandoned and forsaken by his father for our redemption. And then hallelujah, he does not stay on the cross. Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday follows it, and we're going to be talking about the risen Christ setting the captives free. I pray that you'll join us. Father, I can't even, I can't even take the stories that I know are in this room that need redemption. But I can look at you, the author and perfecter of my faith. And I pray that your redemptive power would settle in this room and that you would redeem every soul that is broken, that is hurting, that's been wounded or victimized. In Jesus' name, I pray that you would do that. I know your heart is in that far more than mine is. And I thank you for it. I thank you that you saw me, both sinner and victim, and you sought me out and you redeemed me and you're still redeeming me. I thank you that you have that same heart for every individual in this room. Yeah, God, we just give you glory as our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Just a reminder, we do have baptisms on Wednesday. If the, stir, if the Spirit's stirred in you on that, grab the welcome card, check the box, put your info in there, drop it in the giving. And we'll see you on Palm Sunday. Thank you.